Yeah, I had to tap out on Vox Machina when the bard gnome shot a enemy with a pink lightning bolt from his dick. Um, so you, like, did, did your humor bone die? Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Alien Familiar RPG Podcast. I am Clayton. I'm Jordan. And I'm still Elliot. Before we get started, you can find show notes and more at alienfamiliar.com. You can email us at alienfamiliarmedia at gmail.com. We are on Facebook at facebook.com slash alienfamiliar. And if you would like to help us out with supporting the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash alienfamiliarmedia. So if you enjoy our content and would like to help us out with hosting costs, any help you would be able to give us would be greatly appreciated. Thank you all for joining us today. Uh, Today we are going to be talking uh, from the DM's perspective, from a campaign creation perspective, um, we're going to be talking about creating and running antagonists, specifically the types of antagonists who, for one reason or another, are untouchable by the player characters, whether that's more often than not uh, my experience with having, quote, untouchable antagonists. The untouchable status is something that is gatekept merely by the fact that the enemy is particularly powerful, um, generally too powerful to take down in some way or another. What have you guys actually experienced? Because one of my main reasons for having this as the topic today was I was reading some information about the um, the upbringing of the man who would become Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany during um, World War One, and reading about his upbringing and the fact that Pretty much everybody around him who was competent was just like, oh man, this guy is going to be a disaster when he becomes Kaiser. Well, let's just throw up our hands because this is the monarchy system and there's not a goddamn thing we can do about it. So everybody pull down your pants and bend over because we're all about to get fucked. Well, there's a story that I always tell on this subject. Uh, I wonder if Jordan can predict which one it is. Can you remember the name of the untouchable villain that got touched really hard in a game we played once upon a time? Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I had to dig back in the archives a little bit. This is the the Vader story? Yeah. I guess the, the lesson to be learned from this story is, you know, when you say untouchable villains, I, I, I'm, I don't think it's, it's not a bad thing to have. I think most games have them, and I guess they play an, a, a necessary part. But if you're going to run an untouchable villain, do not allow them to be touched. Because a perfect example is um, we were playing in a Star Wars game and uh, the DM thought he was going to be real cheeky and uh, roll out uh, Darth Vader uh, in the first couple of sessions, thinking that we would just be scared out of our wits and run away. And of course, our Wookiee, you know, murder hobo in the party was like, eh, fuck him. And he charged him and took a shot with his bowcaster and the dm's like why are you doing this you literally can't kill him and he he had a 320s rule in his game that the uh the, this this murder hobo made him reaffirm and said you got to give me at least three three rolls for 20s and long story short rolls 320s vader's head pops off game ends no more game um so just for the outset when you're making your bad and you feel like they need to be untouched, make sure the players can't touch them, because if you give them the chance, they will try and put you in an awkward position. See, I want to make a distinction here, because your example is not actually what I'm talking about. I'm talking about literally, in this first example, too powerful to take down. I'm thinking like Sauron in Lord of the Rings, because he was literally not in corporeal form. Or in Curse of Strahd, Strahd himself at the very beginning of the campaign. The, the player characters cannot possibly do dick to him at the very beginning of the campaign. Um, another example from the 90s, the shows Hercules and Xena. Their main antagonists on both of those series were the gods themselves. They weren't going to be killing the gods. They, weren't, they were going to be everyday defeating the gods machinations 
thwarting the gods' machinations, but they were never going to they were never going to stop Ares from being Ares. Yeah, you need to have some kind of magical system in place uh, to be able to do it uh, that way. I, I think if you're doing something um, in a, a realistic modern setting, the best that you can hope for, if provided that you're actually going to have the villain present and not just like showing up on a TV screen or you know <laughs> on a, on the other end of a phone call or something. Um, if they're actually in the same vicinity as the the player characters, the only thing you can do is to make it uh, a suicide mission if they do go after them. I mean, that's you know how world leaders <laughs> stay alive for for the most part. You know, you've got like rings of security around a VIP, and I mean, I guess it's theoretically possible that somebody could you know load themselves up with like Ebola or something, and you know go shake the hand of a senator or some shit and somehow like get in there and do it. That's, you know, the whole like terrorist uh, strategy, but assuming that your player characters, that your, that your players want to continue playing those characters, they're not going to go for the, you know, bomb vest approach. So, you know, lately I've been thinking about, um, you know, a game, a potential future game, uh, more of a setting uh, than anything else, but where there is no, and maybe we're getting too far away from the topic here, but I personally have gotten to where I kind of want to get away from the Sauron ultimate evil, you know, antagonist, uh, because it, it does, A, it's tropey, you know, it, most games are that. Uh, maybe, at least most of the games I've, I play and run. Um and it can grab hold of the story a little bit. Uh, I feel like when you have this unbeaten foe that you're trying to build your players up to be able to conquer, you create, a, like you were saying, like gates where, you know, it's like, well, you know, the, le- the, the level five arc ends in them defeating lieutenant number one. And then, you know, arc level five to ten, you know, they defeat lieutenant number two. And you just kind of stair-step the players up to ultimately defeating this bad guy. And But then at that point, though, what you're doing is you're kind of riding the players' futures for them. you know. And then it puts a lot of pressure on you as the game master to really run a game where your antagonist is engaging enough for them to want to do something. I mean, obviously, if you're heroes and you know, you've got this big bad that's just... You know, sending armies willy-nilly to lay waste to you know, you know, villages that are innocent or whatever. That's going to create a natural antagonism. But once again, that just seems real tropey. Um, I don't know. Uh, how do you guys feel about the you know, the one big bad to rule them all kind of approach to gaming? I'm also very bored of it, and that's one of many reasons why I'm running my current game in Greyhawk because there's a shitload of you know people who fancy themselves some you know omega tier dark lord um you got vecna you got Caraptus, you got a sararak you got ayus you got loth like there's just shitloads of dark lords all over the place and they fight with each other they fight with you know the humans and all that stuff but like there's there's not really this you know ultimate uh evil bad guy i mean some of the like you know super huge evil gods might sort of act like that for a campaign if you've got like you know orcus or somebody like that as the focal point but um there's you know so many really powerful evil characters that i I think it's i like that approach better than just having one target it makes the, the story more dynamic it you know makes things a lot more unpredictable i think yeah, I'm also very tired of the one big bad to rule them all. And Jordan, you touched on something that I definitely wanted to go into as a way you can avoid doing that, where you mentioned all of those deities, demi-deities, or near-demi-deities in power, individuals. All of those individuals were at the top of a hierarchy. Like in the example of Loth, Loth is on the... Uh, on the 666th layer of the abyss. So 
you're not going to be going there and doing anything to her because she is not on the planet that you are on. You have to deal with all of the things that are going on on the planet. And her. you're not fighting her. You're fighting her institution. And I think that having like institutionalized enemies is a good way of getting around that monolithic evil where you have where you can have an entire organization where there is no particular um, there is no one singular head there is no like single pope of the religion of Loth there's there's the high priestess in each one of the drow cities or whatever but I mean you kill that one high priestess there's going to be a lot more um, acolytes around to become the next high priestess as well it kind of follows the um the hydra model from marvel comics yeah for sure and they're super conniving too like uh the the way that they describe how gods get power from their followers through worship um it doesn't have to be directly like i'm making this sacrifice to Lolth or whoever um a lot of these evil gods will have fake cults with some made up deity that's you know some uh some alter ego or just some completely contrived religion to hook in a bunch of people and they still get all that you know worshiper spirit energy or whatever and there might be you know multiple layers of that going on like they're tricky you know you got to remember these are uh millennia old genius level uh entities and even if they do show up physically, the only thing that's showing up is like an avatar or an aspect or whatever. You kill that thing, but like the only way to actually kill these things is like you were saying, go to the 666th layer of the abyss and somehow kill Loth right there and good luck. Yeah, and at that point, you're not, you're not just trying to kill an individual. You're not just trying to kill a deity. You're trying to kill an idea. Because Loth is the goddess of darkness. How are you going to eliminate darkness from the world to cut off her source of power? Yeah, and when that shit does happen, if, you know, one god kills another one or, you know, some uh, evil deity uh, wipes out another evil deity, they just absorb their whole portfolio of powers. And so that same evil shit is still out there lingering in the cosmos. It's just under the domain of some other character like it doesn't disappear that's why all these things are you know presented as these cyclical you know infinite uh conflicts throughout eternity there's no way to like actually win any of these wars you know the the lately the way i've been trying to think about antagonists in game is i went back and rewatched a few year um weeks ago uh kingdom of heaven have you guys seen that movie lately is that yeah. a Liam Neeson, the Crusader movie? Yeah, yeah. Am I thinking of the right it's thing? It's uh, Ridley yeah. Scott. Uh, I gave it thumbs up. It's a good movie. I mention it because I think about the the antagonist in that movie was Saladin. Uh, I think that's the name of the guy. The 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 uh, the Muslim general who uh, eventually defeated the kingdom of Jerusalem. The king of Jerusalem and Saladin actually had a fairly diplomatic, friendly relationship, but they were just natural enemies. And regardless of their personal, you know, feelings towards one another or their personal goodness or badness, you know, one was a Christian crusader king, one was a, a Muslim, uh, a, you know, a Muslim leader of, of 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 Islam, and there was there's no reconciling those two things, and. Figuring out a way to put that kind of tension in a game, I think is more something that I find myself thinking about more whenever I'm looking at creating a future game. Rather than having your antagonists be just these pure evil, you know, cackling fiends, you know, just put your players at odds with the motivation and see where the chips fall. I mean, and in most of those cases, like, you know, you had mentioned the Wilhelm, you know, in reality... Mono e mono, Wilhelm's not an, a formidable individual. You know, if if a you know a couple of soldiers would just face off against him as an individual, they're gonna wax him. But it's the it would be the implications of him dying or being replaced that would be. It, it's almost like his his armor and his, his power is 
is he has institutional armor, kind of like you were saying with cutting with Hydra. Like, you know, what keeps them from just being offed is like, what's the alternative, you know? And bringing that kind of concept of an antagonist into the game, into a game, I think is something I think a lot about these days. Yeah, and from the historical perspective, kingdoms went to war all the time, and nobody was really the evil person in the war. Like, both sides vilified their enemies, but when you look back, there was no good side and there was no bad side. That is a narrative that we have uh, managed to create or managed to become a part of popular culture since probably um, World War II, where we where we actually have, oh, those guys really were doing some very fucking bad shit and they needed to be stopped. If you go back to World War One, it's a like it's a bunch of soldiers um, in the field just dying because their countries were telling them to do it, and a bunch of vainglorious generals who got them into the uh into the mess to begin with. There wasn't an some evil hand wringing mustache twirling villain behind it all if you went back in time and managed to assassinate wilhelm ii um in 1905 congratulations you started world war one nine years earlier good for you there there was the the good and evil narrative in the the middle ages for like the crusades though it was i mean the the pope would issue edicts about how Christian kingdoms were supposed to fight against each other versus how they would fight against, you know, the heathen Muslims or whatever. There, there was some idea of like on religious lines of we're Christendom. So we're going to treat each other with some degree of civility versus, uh, you know, the, the Moors or whoever it is that they were fighting that, you could be a, a little bit more savage with, and that was that was still okay with the Vatican. Yeah, tell that to Constantinople, though. Well, I'm not saying it's 100 percent there. I'm just saying what the what the party line was. Yeah, that narrative of portraying the enemy as the villain is has, has definitely always been there. But you don't need to be constrained whenever you're creating the reasons why a particular, um, like in your games, why a particular. Um, nation state decides to go to war for another i mean as we are recording this right now hopefully this doesn't happen but russia's looks like it might be poised to attack the ukraine and like we can we can vilify the russians as much as we want but when it comes down to it putin isn't a isn't a cartoon villain i don't know have you seen the memes I've seen him shirtless wrestling bears, if that's what you mean. I mean, you know, it's, you know, this, I don't think that there's anything wrong with creating bad guys that are superior to your party. Like, I don't think that there is, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. I think about like the cons in ancient times, you know, it's like the Goths invaded Rome. Well, why? Well, partly because of the pressure from the steppe warriors, I believe they were uh, the Huns, uh, were displacing a lot of those people. So, you know, it, it, we, when we look back at European history, the Goths are definitely, you know, you know, seen as black and white, just kind of evil vandals, right? But in reality, they were just displaced people trying to find a new place, and that forced them into an antagonistic relationship. Something like that, I think, can be interesting to bring into a game. But ultimately, you know, after the, you know, eventually the Huns showed up on the Romans' door and Kublai Khan was just like, was it? Oh, God, I, I'm, I'm fucking this history up. I know I am, but you get the idea. You're, you're thinking Attila. I think it, I'm thinking Attila, yeah. And the, I mean, Attila, he had no good intentions. You know, he had no good intentions towards Rome, towards anyone else. He was just a straight up basic conqueror who did his thing. But uh, I, I, the, the idea that the party you know the party's ultimate destiny is to is to be in direct conflict with this one big bad and their destiny is fixed on overthrowing that that bad guy i mean those games can be fun i mean i've played in a bunch of them and they're a ton of fun but you know the devil's definitely in the details and it can it can definitely lead you down a path where you just 
put the game on rails. And I think as we've established many times over the course of this podcast, at least in my opinion, when the game gets on rails, I think the party has less fun because they don't feel like they have agency. So when you're the DM and you're building them up to fight this one big bad, you can run the risk of really severely cutting the agency of your players. And, and they just don't feel good, you know, as a player. You want to feel like you have control of your destiny, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one thing I would caution if you're going to be pulling one of these where the the antagonist of the campaign isn't a bad guy. It's just somebody who is either ideologically or under the banner of a different nation state. Like, make that clear at the start that you're not going to have a campaign where you're going to have an evil person who you're going to grow to revile every time their name is spoken. I, I've, I've seen it happen where I've been in a game where there, it was, it was modeled after the, um, the Crusades. We didn't have full buy-in from all of the players that that was exactly what we were going to be, that we were going to be Christian Knights going on crusade. And we got to a point where some of the players in the party, they didn't see the point in fighting against the Muslims because they weren't evil. And so I don't want to be a bad guy. So I don't want to continue in this campaign. And the campaign fell apart because there it it broke that expectation of we're going to have a bad guy who we're going to fight. Though, on the other hand, I think that's a really interesting that could be a very interesting plot to a game long long term is if you intentionally set out to be that way that the players are going to eventually have the ability to see that maybe they're not on the 100% good side and you put them in a decision point where they have to question you know am i doing this for the right reasons that that i think is a very interesting turn in a for a group of players but the DM has to be prepared for it. It's only when you march out this big bad or this big big bad arc and the players are like, you know, nah, dog, my, my chaotic neutral thief just ain't into this. You know, I don't really care. Uh, you really have to decide at the beginning how it needs to play out so that your party doesn't create conflicting characters with your narrative. Um, but I would caution also that if you have certain types of player characters that could be built that would be in conflict with your narrative, that might be a warning sign that maybe your narrative isn't where it needs to be. Sorry, I'm tr- I was trying to very quickly look up who the, um, from Kingdom of Heaven, the uh, the Knights Templar guy, who, who was directly an antagonist for the main character of the movie, but he was also a Christian, so... I'm pretty sure Guy was the um, was the prince of Jerusalem, the, but I'm maybe I'm misremembering. Yeah, I guess it's true. The argument could be said in that particular example that yeah, the antagonist was the zealot Christian crusader from France who just wanted war at all cost, even though you know the king and most smart people realized that fighting them directly, the Muslims directly, was just a quick way to lose and. That's how the game, I mean, spoiler alert, that's how it happens. And that can be a very interesting model to put your characters against because that character was entirely legal in their position. They had every right by their system. They That, that character had every right to command the knights that he had under his command and to do the things that he did. He didn't break any laws in doing all of those things and so it puts the player characters in a particular bind where they have to do something about this but they can't just kill him because that would be that would be illegal that would be morally wrong to um, attack and kill somebody who is your ally they would your your player characters would suffer the repercussions of that and quite possibly throw your entire force, your entire army into disarray because you just killed one of their greatest generals. This is one of those things that I, I think about a lot about like uh, our, our modern uh, morality and how it plays out in role-playing games versus what like the 
the era in human history in which this is uh, sort of, you know, emulating or pantomiming or whatever, what things were actually like at the time. Um, like you were talking about the, at the very beginning, Clayton, like people would just do what the king said because that's the right thing to do. Because you're born into a situation where you're told your whole life that whatever the king does is what God wants. And so by definition, anything that the king tells you to do is the right thing to do, no matter how horrible it might seem. It's it's hilarious the like how many times I've seen, you know, the uh the revolutionary fervor of uh, <laughs> modern moralizing uh playing out in a D and D group. And the king himself feels the same way. That's the thing. It's it's everybody's in on the in on the the delusion, you know. Yeah, you can't even really talk about it like it's it's much of a scam. Um, uh, I mean, I guess you know the priests are bullshitting about what God's telling them to do, but like everybody else down from that is full on believing. Like, yeah, I was obviously I was born to the throne. Like, what argument do you have for me not being here? Like, the, it's absurd to think about. Are there any advantages? We've trashed the whole big bad villain. Can we re- can we like rehab it a little bit? Like you know, you just you bringing in the whole moral, m- you know, modern thing. We've said it. We've also said, at least I have a bunch on in past episodes that like sometimes D and D gaming, what have you, for a certain type of person. Me, in most cases, is it's a refuge from the complexity of day-to-day life. And sometimes it is a relief to just go into a black-and-white situation and just, you know, go fight the big bad or ultimately try to thwart the evildoer. Uh, I think that's the appeal of the fantasy genre in general. It's certainly, I think, a secret to the success of Tolkien. Um, You know, I mean, is there a right way to pull that off is there anything wrong if that's the way you how do you make that a compelling game i don't know if uh if that i agree with you uh elliot that that is uh, a relief and is uh, a big selling point for a certain piece of the role-playing experience um but i think people are probably unsatisfied if that's the totality of it, like I think that black and white uh, chop them up for, you know, God and country uh, simplicity is what you want for like your skirmishes and stuff. But when you're actually encountering, you know, a, a significant NPC uh, for an opposing side, I think people get much more interested when it's a lot more like, you know, Game of Thronesy. Um so I don't know. I, I feel like there's probably some kind of double standard or, or some kind of you know dichotomy of expectation there, depending on you know how important the or the perceived importance of the villains that you're facing happens to be. You know what I mean? And just because you're doing this doesn't mean that like you're not going to, like the entire campaign is going to be completely bereft of having that type of simplistic. Like here is enemy, we kill enemy. Like the this idea of having an an enemy who can't just be chopped up. In my mind, that is more of a relatively high level problem for the player characters to face because whenever the player characters reach a certain power level, they can literally just kill or banish to another plane anything that gives them any sort of a problem. From everything that I've read, the game is really designed to have enemies who the players can't just do that to. The The best enemies, at particularly at that time, are the ones who are designed to stick around because they have a role to play in the greater world. And the player characters need to think about the consequences of their actions and realize that sometimes that expedient let's just kill the bad guy is going to lead to a whole lot worse consequences than a very long drawn out process of defeating the enemy in another way such as by literally convincing them otherwise or um, 
using um, like trying to create alliances between um, disparate groups of people. I see that as being what relatively high level D&D is all about is that interpersonal conflict rather than just being we take out our swords and spells and kill. Although that does eventually become that is the culmination of all of that. But the high level play seems to be around presenting these types of gray area puzzles that the player characters need to work themselves through and to have a single big bad it it really does just get to be too simplistic especially for high level characters yeah i think a good two um two things from fiction that i think does this well is the conan the barbarian movie and even like the highlander movies because i think one thing that we failed to mention that's a trope that is almost like a, a I mean they always go hand in hand I can't think of a time I haven't had a big bad that also didn't have some apocalypse you know mechanism also it's like almost like lazy dms or just me being one of them um is like well how do I engage these players with this bad guy since he's clearly too big for them to actually confront well he's of course he's destroying the world so you know you know, that's how the players get wrapped up in this is that they have a we'll put them on the clock, you know, we'll create a puzzle or where we go collect, you know, apocalypse tokens or, you know, what have you or take the ring and throw it in Mount Doom or whatever. But like if you I mean, Thulsa Doom, you know, he had a ultimately, I guess he would have been a big threat to everybody. But really, he was just a dude who had a cult in the middle of nowhere that occasionally went out and like killed people. I mean, there was no clock for Conan to kill him. Conan did all kinds of shit from the time that he, you know, decided he wanted to kill Thulsa Doom until he actually got a chance to. And then on the other hand, in the Highlander suggestion, I mean, it was personal. You know, this the 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 Kurgan, you know, killed you know was the one who put Connor McLeod in the ground the first time and killed his family. And it took hundreds of years for them to actually confront each other. In fact, you could argue that Connor like intentionally didn't make an effort to find him for a long time. You know. So, like, having a big bad, I think the best way, maybe a good way to engage the party with a bad guy that you want them to confront, but doesn't, but without actually stealing their agency, you know, just have them fuck with them. Put it in their backstory. Or, like, you know, when, you know, thumbnail some important NPCs or important places, things that matter to the players. And when you want to bring this big bad into the world or make it feel like, give the players a reason to really have it out for this particular path, go steal, you know, go take away some of their treasures, you know, have them destroy the keep they worked so hard to get, have them kill that beloved NPC, you know, have them burn down their hometown, like make it personal. You know, those types of details will motivate the party to go at an individual over the long run. But, you know, there's no reason to put urgency into it as well. I mean, if you do, then that's what kind of, irks me that's what puts me on a rail it's like we got to do it now before they get the mate you know the major crystal that unlocks the destruction of the world you know that to me just makes me want to puke yeah my favorite thing along these lines is to set up a a powerful bad guy that is in intimidating in their own right and has their their goons and you know whatever but the reason that the party doesn't just roll initiative immediately is because the the villain has something that the party needs and maybe it's information maybe it's like an actual object but they don't know where it is maybe it's a person um you know the the cool thing about conan uh with thulsa doom he had uh the king's daughter there you know who had joined the cult so like you know good villains surround themselves with hostages and collect things that people want and then you get the opportunity when you've kind of taken combat off the table to slowly start corrupting uh, player characters. You get them off their high horse. You make them make little compromises and cooperate with the villain for a greater good, sure. But you you gotta you gotta make some sausage. <laughs> and, uh, once once the player characters start getting their hands dirty. Uh, I think a lot of the the pretense of the the knight in shining armor perspective, you know, starts getting a little tarnished, and that's when interesting stuff starts happening. Especially 
inter-party dynamics that, that flow out of that. A lot of the best advice that I've read online when starting new campaigns and trying to figure out how I'm going to like, uh, how am I going to think about this story arc is, uh, is not being afraid to have a simple story. You know, uh, there's no reason to have this super complex, you know, big, you know, weaving storyline. Why not just, I think it, it works best when you keep it really simple. And that could even be have a big bad, but keep it simple and let the players fill in, give the players the ability to fill in the details. And, um, you know, just load the game with content. The simpler that you make your ultimate antagonist or the simpler you make your arc, then you can focus more of your time on the individual session or the individual arcs and fill them with lots of interesting details. And like, kind of like what I was saying earlier, it's like, you know, if you want, if you, I mean, if you really want your party to really hate somebody, is grow a stable of really fun, engaging NPCs, and then allow those NPCs to get, you know, bond with them over time, doing these fairly simple quests, you know, and just focus on making good characters in game. And then when it's time to roll out the big bad, then you know, when the big bad threatens those things that those players are really attached to be it a locality like a town or a city or a group of people maybe they've befriended then at that point they have developed such a bond that what's driving the game isn't the overarching narrative it's the in-game relationships and in-game content that in a lot of ways the players themselves have made that keeps them wanting to go forward you know towards your big bad when you want them to go there but maybe this is getting too far away from the villain itself no, I don't think it's getting too far away from the villain. I I wanted this to be just focusing on not necessarily a big villain, but the anything that is encompassed by by the label antagonist. And that doesn't have to mean it's the the main villain of the campaign. It could be each of the individual people that you come across in the course of adventures and maybe there is um, somebody who is an antagonist for a few sessions who the player characters really have no real reason to kill, but they are definitely a thorn in the player character's side. I, I keep using fantasy examples, but like in my example of having a, a completely incompetent or a king who is just fucking everything up, maybe the king isn't necessarily the antagonist, but maybe the antagonist is one of the advisors and the player characters have no, like if they wanted to take out the advisor, well, the result of that is that the player characters suddenly become outlaws and they have, they have to deal with the entirety of the kingdom looking out, looking out for them and trying to uh, get their heads on a pike so that they can turn in the reward. Having those types of enemies who just don't like the player characters. I have seen that become an antagonist that the player characters remember more often than any of these big, huge bad guys who loom over the entirety of the campaigns. Those end up being ultimately forgettable. The characters that I have seen my players hate the most and the ones that I remember hating the most have been the incidental people I've, quote, met along the way who just piss me off and there isn't a goddamn thing I can do about it. Jordan, the example that comes to my mind is from the Apocalyptia Factions game and the fucking commander of the military base. My character fucking hated that guy and there was not a goddamn thing I could do to him. Yeah, you were in a very close physical proximity with him and often when he did not have a, a terribly large entourage either, like in your all's town and those can be that can be so good as a that's i mean i think that's the sign of a really fun game is that when you can nest your bad guys very closely with your parties and they have their hands on their sword hilts the whole time but they just they just fear the unintended consequences of making the bad move uh yeah that just reeks of a game that's a lot of fun you know it's a sign you're doing something right yeah, I think if you if you spend some time thinking about um, your your cosmological or political or both 
um, ecosystem of power and like figure out, you know, why these different entities continue to exist, even though they are in opposition to other entities that are, you know, within the setting. Um, and, you know, what kinds of things might happen if one would be removed from that ecosystem uh, and ha have an idea of like why everything would fall apart if you just, you know, cut the head off the, the evil character. Like what the fuck happens in Mordor like the day after Frodo throws the ring into the volcano? You know, Sauron's gone, but aren't there still like a billion fucking works running around? You know, like that's the problem with those super simplistic two-sided kinds of stories is that like are are you gonna go on some kind of like crazy extermination spree and just murder every single thing that is on the opposing side or are you gonna try to find some equilibrium like it's much more interesting when there's um you know multiple elements kind of mixing together and playing off of each other yeah that's something that really isn't handled that I've seen either in the scope of campaigns, because usually when the big bad is dead, then the campaign is over and movies. Oh my God. Movies, sci-fi movies have this trope down where you, you stop the big blue blink blue beam coming down from the sky. And suddenly all of the enemies drop dead. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, that's the thing. It, it is, it is a balancing act. I will say, I mean, it, it, it's just really difficult to run a game that has no terminate, like ultimate terminus, you know, but everybody always throttles forward to, well, then that means I've got to make a level 20, you know, big, bad paladin, evil necromancy, blah, or a lich king or some shit like that. You know, there's nothing wrong with building your arc. Like if we're talking about D and D, just don't think past level 10. Like don't, or don't think past level five, you know, get them thinking these small arcs and then let it build because just the power curve of the game itself is almost going to force you to eventually introduce a very formidable bad guy just because of the power level of the, of the players. You know, you can almost put a pin in as a DM, you almost put a pin in it, like knowing that eventually I'm going to have to confront these players with a very formidable foe once they get to the point where they can just wax almost any, you know, anything less than a super evil bad guy. You know, why does, why did you have to even introduce that? Why do, why does there have to be foreshadowing? You know, why did, why do you have to worry about like dropping little clues towards an eventual outcome that statistics say you're never really going to unfold, you know, unfurl, you know, you're probably never going to get to that fight. So, you know, it feels a lot more satisfying if these, your bad guys, your antagonists, you know, turn over at achievable, you know, mile markers, you know, and thinking in terms of much shorter arcs, even if you're thinking long-term game, uh, I think can just be more manageable when you're running. And also for the players, I think can be a lot more fun because then they can breathe. They don't have this urgency to go to save the world, you know. This is one of the things that I really like about the old school way of doing things where, um, for one thing, you stop getting hit points at a certain level. Um, you, the top end is, you know, significantly stronger, but not like as huge of a jump um, from starting position to kind of your finished character. And when you die, you start over at the beginning. So there's like this constant like churn of of player characters and you know even if you do manage to be one of the the really clever and lucky few that survive um you're still gonna get your fucking bell rung by you know relatively common you know large challenges that might come around <laughs> this is one of those areas where uh game mechanics really affect uh the kind of stories that you tell with them uh, when you talk about like power curves and how that necessitates, you know, the, the arms race of, of villainy that, that comes out of that. Um, I don't know. I, I definitely like keeping it lower 
so that everything is always kind of challenging, but you still have like a sense of, of accomplishment and, you know, excitement. I think one thing that can kind of get in the way of DMs, like me, I'll just keep using me as an example because I'm a bad, I fall into this really bad. It's kind of the thing I'm trying to attack in me as a game gamer in general, DM, I guess, is that sometimes when you're worried too much about your big bad or some overarching storyline, what you're really doing is you're neglecting with your time and your prep the thing that really matters to players the most, which is, you know, session by session, enjoyable encounters. And, you know, for me, I've always struggled to run combat well because I think I don't put a lot of thought and interest in design of combat. And playing in your game, Jordan, it's shown me that in the orig- you know, in the earliest days, it was flipped. You know, the, it was, the focus was on the dungeon. The focus was on the encounters and, you know, what they populated those dungeons and those encounters with were almost secondary. It's like, uh, we're going to design this really cool dungeon. We're going to design this series of encounters that are we think would be fun to play through and challenging. And I could even see that after the fact. It's like, well, who are these people once you've built it? It's like, okay, well, then you come up with it after the fact. Um, you know, put, keeping a simple story and just focusing mainly on, like, you know, how is, are, these encou- I mean, are these encounters going to be fun? Uh, you know, in D&D 5e, you know, it can be, you know, there's a lot of ways to mix in really interesting combat, you know, uh, quirks. It's just you got to put in the time to design it. And I just know personally, I feel like I definitely neglect that because I want to put my thoughts into these this big overarching story that ultimately the players are usually never going to interact with. Yeah, I try to never design more than what I can confidently foresee will actually be content in the game like whenever i'm trying to do a an entire campaign arc uh for one thing i don't design in DD level 1 to 20 campaigns anymore i have done that enough times and had the campaigns fizzle out before level 10 enough times to realize that everything that i designed after level 10 is just wasted time and wasted energy that i could have put into making the game better at the early and mid levels. So the way I design the campaigns is I design an arc at a time and I I just create the skeleton. And that skeleton will include some people who have kind of abrasive tech personalities. And I'll just let the interaction with the player characters determine whether or not the player characters end up hating them or not. And then if they end up hating them, well, then I know exactly who one of the main villains coming up is going to be. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think putting more thought in, like, for instance, when you guys ran through Strahd, I started off with Curse of Phandelver, and, like, in this situation, the bad guy, I think the, the, the spider, I think it's the black spider, he's a pud. He's, like, not much of a bad guy. But he just happened to escape. And so, like, in the background of the rest of the of the game, like, I kept dangling that guy out there, and it was just totally accidental, but, you know, I had no plans on that being there, but I would even forget about him sometimes until, like, a player would, ref like, I'm going to go ask this guy if they've seen the black spider. I was like, oh, yeah, that guy, oops, what's he doing? You know what I mean? But the players will definitely fill in the content for you. I just, it, it, games are not about the bad guy. They are about the NPCs. I would say that's just it. Like, the game lives and dies by how much fun they're having day to day and having fun NPCs, interesting locations that will generate so much of your content for you. Um, I kind of feel like we're kind of, all right guys. So the last thing I want to bring up is talking about how to use um, as an antagonist, because this really isn't a, an enemy per se, but the whole idea of man versus nature like forces of nature are very much things that you people struggle against, people have to fight against. And this could be a natural disaster. More often, I see this manifest as something like um, in apocalyptic scenarios, like a plague or zombies or things like that, things that aren't actually an, a thinking enemy but it's just something that the player characters just have to struggle with against because 
it's there, it's in their face, they have to deal with it. It's not a physical enemy in the same way that you have a big bad for the campaign. Jordan, you have run more zombie and post-apocalyptic campaigns in this vein than anybody else I know. How do you go about creating this type of thing as the, quote, enemy that the player characters have to deal with the entirety of a campaign? Yeah, um, so it's, you change what the win condition is. Like, when you're fighting Sauron, you know, the win condition is to uh, destroy the ring and thereby kill Sauron. When you're fighting a a zombie apocalypse, it's sort of like, you know, the aftermath of the return of the king. Like I mentioned, like, you've just got a sea of of adversaries to deal with. There, There is no way uh really to to wipe them out as one player character so the game isn't to kill all the bad guys the game is to retain your humanity in a situation where you have so many opportunities to basically go feral the kinds of villains that you throw at people in situations like that like you know see the walking dead see negan um you know the governor like these kinds of of characters they basically lost and there's cool like symbolic inversion stuff that happens because the world's you know completely turned on its head the dead are are walking um the living are dying and the the people who are in charge of large groups of other people and have made themselves petty kings have basically lost the game because they've become you know fucking savages um and that takes a toll on them in one way or the other um so yeah that's that's a pretty lengthy way of going at it did i answer anything that you asked (laughs) yeah absolutely so you also touched upon something else i wanted to talk about and kind of in the same vein and that is the fact that in that particular scenario and in a lot of these disaster scenarios corruption the corruption of the individual is as much the enemy of the campaign as any physical person that the player characters may come against it's the fight of retaining oneself that is dramatic and it is fucking amazing to see player characters actually get into it and living through the consequences of their actions whenever their characters feel like they're in a life or death situation where they don't have any good options they can't be the heroes they have to just choose the lesser of evils in order to see the next day. It can be very bleak. It can be very, um, very heavy and hard to get through if it's something that you just keep doing. I think it works really great for like short-term campaigns. Um, it and it's something that I love exploring in my games. Um, gosh. Good points. I love the zombie apocalypse um, scenario as a basis for a game. You know, I don't even think they have to be short run. I think they have a lot of staying power if you want to. There's just a lot of rich content in a in a game like that, especially you know, it, it, trying to break it away from zombie games. Even if it's just like a paradigm shift kind of a game, uh, the zombie game comes to my mind in that like, like I, I ran one not too awful long ago where. You know, one of the subplots that the players just got a ton of play out of was just some people just not giving up on the way things were. And so, like, I remember I had a character who was like the manager of a of a state park who in the pre-world, you know, was just the default leader and had all the skills to keep it running in normal life. But then when this happened, it was like he was still like trying to assert himself as the leader and he wasn't prepared for this. Um, you've got like enclaves of people you can go save and then you have to put then put the players in moral positions or they have to go whether the danger of the world itself is it worth it is it worth going to save these people and then you can turn uh, those games are really fun Uh, one thing i before i get too long in the winded long-winded about this is i think that you've done a good job jordan changing my mind on even in basic fantasy um make like making us keep track of rations and things. I've always hated that in games in the past, but you've put us in a game right now where it's a pretty desolate stretch of play, you know, distance that we've had to go away from place, uh, 
locations. And I, you know, I was getting really anxious as our rations and things were are ticking away. When you put players out and force them to hold on to that, like, I don't know, there's something to be said about the bean counting of resource management that can generate some interesting tension in game because, like, if, you know, you give the players a left or right and they go the wrong way, they could run themselves out of rations and, like, that itself could generate a ton of fun. Um, things like that, just weather, um, you know, getting lost, simply just not knowing where you're going, like, just telling, giving, you know, the players the opportunity to be lost and being prepared for that as a DM, you know, these players are going to a place they don't know and they don't have good guidance on how to get there, and it's a real possibility they can get lost. Giving you know, be, giving yourself enough time to prepare for that eventuality when the players ultimately do, you know, that can actually be pretty fun. Yeah, and in the roots of Dungeons & Dragons, like the, the very primordial DNA of the thing is a game from Avalon Hill called Outdoor Survival, and it's so important that it's listed as an essential uh, item to have in the old white box men and magic uh, original D&D player handbook it had a, a hex map on it and a bunch of shit about like here's forests here's trails here's rivers um, and you had to keep track of your food and water and navigation like it there are no navigation rules in that version of D&D it says use the rules from the Avalon Hill game <laughs> and in that Avalon Hill game, it gets fairly complicated. But one of the things that fucks you is that if you get lost, you roll a D6 and just go off in a random direction on this hex map. And you're just blowing through your, your food and water doing that, um, you know, trying to trying to figure out where the fuck to go. Like, how do you have an interesting uh, desert crossing without managing resources um or you know managing your warmth if you're trying to you know climb over snow-capped mountains or through the tundra or whatever you could reasonably argue that nature itself was our very first enemy and uh i i think making people combat that as a, a frail uh human or humanoid character that's chock full of uh, interesting adventure opportunity. I think I don't, I don't want to fast travel. Yeah. That's one of the reasons why dark sun has always been one of my favorite D and D campaign settings is because it's set in a desert world from reading the literature that is in the books. You get lost out in the desert without water. You are dead. You are in a very bad way there. And so even in D and D, you're essentially screwed if you go out if if you don't have a plan and you just wander the desert well that's a good way of getting your character killed and it's not just like building tension for for you like oh shit or the dice gonna fuck me and my character just dies because of you know dehydration rules or whatever um i saw hints of this happening with you specifically elliot when people started being like hey how many rations you guys got? <laughs> Who's got a water skin? Like, how are we looking on that inventory? And, you know, as things start getting a little leaner, people start kind of side-eyeing around, kind of running through some scenarios, like, worst comes to worst, it's not going to be me that starves to death, you know? Yeah, I mean, just again, I, it takes some subtlety. I do think it takes some subtlety to know when that's getting tiring. Um, I think you need to plan very, you know, you have to plan very intentionally. Uh, for instance, like I, uh, I dabbled with the thought I will eventually run this game, but it's a, a pretty much straight up simulator of prehistory where you're based, where you're playing like either recently settled farmers or hunter gatherers. And for whatever reason, you have to make a long distance trek as they did from time to time. And, you know, by about day eight or nine of watches and rations and being lost in water. And if you're the DM and you just know, like, they're going nowhere. Like, oh my God, they're so lost. The game is going to quickly devolve into, you know, deer hunting simulator, foraging simulator. It's like you're going to spend an in half a session just them reaccumulating enough food and water to continue to travel. And that could be kind of tiring, but... 
you know, have in your back pocket like a secret temple that is, you know, independent of a location. You just kind of have it in your back pocket to where, you know, if I'm going to introduce these players, the opportunity to get lost, then if things start to, you know, you know, if, if things start to lose momentum and the players are getting gritty, then have something in your back pocket to throw at them. But uh, I do think that just not giving it any sort of respect, which I've definitely been guilty of in the past, uh, pulls out an essential element. It really, as a DM, it makes life harder for you, too. Because you have to just, if you fast travel, essentially, you're going from content to content. You know, you got, I mean, you're, re- you have to be fully prepared. I mean, having interesting travel that eats up time, um, but can still stay fun is just a huge burden off of you as the DM, too. It takes a lot of prep to be spontaneous like that. Sure does. It does. It does. And that's kind of how you got to approach building your game. Um, are we ready to move on to geek things? We're getting a little long. Uh, yeah, yeah, I sure. think so. Well, we'll move on to geek things, but I don't have any geek things this time. So you guys will have to carry us out to the end of the episode. Oh, uh, God. I've been thinking about this this whole time in the back of my mind. <laughs> I've been really loaded down with work and shit. Um, I haven't been doing a whole lot of geek things. I, I will throw something out there uh, my uh, boss recently uh, I, I, we finished Book of Boba Fett like, I'm, I'm sure everybody's you know watched Book of Boba Fett by now and it has its highs and lows but the one thing I love about the new Star Wars series on Disney Plus is that they're slowly building a future for Star Wars and they're pulling heavily from the cartoons the Clone Wars Rebels um, uh, the Bad Batch and I had really never watched those after Book of Boba Fett, I was like, I guess, I mean, I have to know some of this backgrounding if Dave Filoni is going to continue to pull in his stuff from Clone Wars and stuff. So I went and rewatched all, I, I, I finished Rebels. I had watched the first couple seasons years ago and enjoyed it, but dropped it. I powered through the rest of the series, and it is mwah, magnificent. I would really recommend any Star Wars fan who's looking forward to any new properties, you need to take this downtime. Go watch Clone Wars. Go watch Bad Batch. Get caught up on these cartoons. Because A, they're just really good. And B, like, we're going to be seeing a lot more of these characters in the future. So that's my geek thing. Go back and rewatch the Star Wars cartoons if you haven't already. All right. My geek thing is kind of weird because it's it's been around for a while. And it's a very, very niche kind of thing. But um, so I'm not a huge Harry Potter fan. I've never read the books. I only recently finished watching all the movies. I liked them, but, you know, whatever. Not a, not a fanboy of that franchise by any stretch. But God damn it! if you get a chance to go to Universal Studios and check out the fucking Harry Potter stuff that they got going on there, that is the most fun I've ever had at a theme park. Um, Universal split up into, like, three different sub-parks. And the Harry Potter stuff, unfortunately, is split between two. So you have to buy, like, you know, kind of the pass or whatever to get between them. But you ride a fucking train, just like, you know, going to Hogwarts. Um, the the little towns, uh, the alley in the town that um, they've set up for these things is just so immersive. Uh, it's everything. Diagon very, Alley is dope. Dude, they've got this fucking dragon sitting on top of the Gringotts Bank building, and every 10 minutes, this thing starts grumbling, and then it roars, and then it blows a fucking fireball over your head down the street, and you feel the fucking heat on your face. It is fucking dope. Go to Harry Potter World. Check that shit out. The rides are fucking cool. The food is fucking amazing. Like, I've never had good food at a fucking theme park before but man even just the fucking shops are cool just walking around and just being fully fucking immersed in in all this stuff like 10 out of 10 universal studios you fucking knocked it out of the park with the harry potter shit fucking love it i'm i'm gonna go back probably another time if i can or more and and bring a fucking bank account because there ain't nothing cheap in that place I, that's true i spent that's true uh, I spent an embarrassing amount of money on three wands. That was a fun experience in and of itself. Can I steal your geek thing real quick, Clayton? Because another thing popped into my head. Hey, I'll make it short. Uh, 
Name of the Wind, Patrick Rothfuss. I'm reading that book right now. I've struggled to find a decent fantasy book. I feel like I found it. It's great. That's all I'll say. Just if you're looking for an audiobook or something and you got a, just a credit or whatever, you just want to throw at something, give it a shot. It's really fucking good. Really good. And it's not overwhelming. It's only three books. They're big books. So I'm only about halfway through the first book. But it seems attainable. And I'm looking forward to seeing where it goes. Good stuff. Mwah. All right, guys. What do you say we stop this bullshit and start rolling some dice? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. This has been a production of Alien Familiar Media. You can find past episodes and more at alienfamiliar.com. You can email us at alienfamiliarmedia at gmail.com. This production is protected under a Creative Commons non-commercial attribution, no derivatives license. Music for this episode is Suburban Outlaw by Forget the Whale and can be found at freemusicarchive.org.